0: Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and OrthoEvidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from OrthoEvidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, welcome to this edition uh, of OrthoJoe, and we have a special guest, my friend and colleague Kent Anderson, and Kent what you get for participating is this absolutely priceless uh, ortho Joe travel mug and we are grateful for your taking the time to uh, spend a few minutes with us and enlighten uh, our audience on the several areas of scholarly publication and uh, I want to just uh, point out to the audience that I had the chance to work with Kent. Uh, when he was CEO of JBJS, um, if my memory is correct, it was about six years
1: that yep, you held, that held right. the
0: post until so 09 uh, to 2014, I think it was. Yeah. And actually, I have to credit uh, Kent for the fact that I uh, am editor in chief of the journal. Uh, Kent um, had several conversations with me. I had been on the board for a number of years as a deputy editor, and uh, uh, thanks to Kent, I, I was encouraged to apply, and sure enough, here I am, uh, eight <laughs> years later. So, Kent, thanks for that. Kent has extensive experience in the scholarly publication world. Uh, has worked for the New England Journal, uh, and he uh, he worked for Science uh, for a while. Uh, and uh, I I will say, uh, from my opinion, that he is the thought leader uh, in scholarly publication. He was the founder of the Scholarly Kitchen blog. Uh, and uh, I don't know if we'll get into why you kind of left that uh, or not, but he now has his, uh, his his own, The Geyser, which I am a subscriber to, and I would strongly recommend anybody uh, who is interested in this uh, field of scholarly publication and other things I'll point out, uh, should be a subscriber to Kent's uh, blog. And uh, just before uh, we get into some questions here, one of the things that Kent does in his blog is he does a song every Friday and Kent's a musician. And Kent, I don't know if you follow this ortho Joe blog, but we interviewed Tom Einhorn uh, most recently, you, you know, Tom,
1: I uh, do, you you started
0: JB just reviews with Tom. Right. And if you miss, if you miss it, uh, Tom actually was a musician early in his career and his group opened for the who at one point. Wow. Wow. You might want to watch that. uh,
1: We'll catch that episode episode
0: of ortho Joe.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, and uh, of course uh, Kent knows uh, Mo uh, from scholarly work for years. Absolutely,
2: Uh, yeah, we know each other. Good to see you again.
0: Yeah, uh, those Oe Ortho Evidence. uh, Well, so let's just uh, dive in. Kent, you have uh, really followed the open access uh, movement uh, throughout the past two decades, and maybe you could just offer the audience of your thoughts about why it was started uh, and why it's not hitting the mark
1: sure and thanks again for inviting me to do this mark and mo i really appreciate it and it's great to see you both again it's been too long yeah so open access started in around 1997 1998 and was first put seriously on the table with the e um, proposal that was put out by pubmed and um and i remember one of the founders of that telling me at a at a talk that he gave when i asked him why he thought you know all the information should be free and you know the, there should be the publishers had no further role in it and all of these things why he thought that and he said well let's just see what the internet can do and to me that encapsulates the techno utopian view of the world which is that if you just throw technology at problems you they will solve themselves you don't need to do anything else it's a way of abdicating responsibility Um, it's a way of abdicating the human role in knowledge creation and and uh, emerging knowledge and so i think ever since then it has morphed in a number of different ways one the funders all of a sudden caught on to the fact that the funding model which was based on the article processing charge would allow them to pay very little money to have uh, their initial investment in research pay off in a published work. And so it cleared a road for them to basically accomplish a marketing goal. And pharmaceutical companies also started to use that uh, so that they could do publication planning, You know, start to, to filter in citable works at a very low level using open access at a, at a very low charge and so over time it became this confluence of self-interests and then authors joined in because they also saw a way for them to get more cited works done and then for publishers the big change came with the entrance of china as a major research producer which in the course of five to seven years went from a very small contributor to the overall scientific level of out, level of scientific output to the dominant one outpacing the United States and that created pressures on journals to expand their page counts and their article counts to expand their portfolios and ultimately to embrace open access because here was a way to make money simply by processing this huge wave of articles that was coming in and so all of these forced, all of these participants were under various pressures. So you had funders under pressure to produce citable uh, results from their their bets on research uh, initiatives. You had authors under pressure. And academic life itself put them under extreme pressure because what one expert called the shopping mall era of scientific research where, you would have a storefront given to you by a major university, and if you were able to maintain that storefront through grant foot traffic, you could keep it as long as you could. If you couldn't, if you couldn't publish enough papers and get enough grants, you were booted, and another uh, prospect was brought in. So there was a lot of pressure to keep up papers, and then you had publishers dealing with it. Why I don't think it's uh, borne the fruit that people think it, it, it was inevitable, inevitably going to. I think is multifaceted. I think the uh, naivete about the 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 idea that there were there wasn't going to be mediation beyond publishers uh, never occurred to people. Even though in 1998, Google demonstrated with the uh, vaccines and autism paper from Wakefield that appeared in the Lancet yeah. that there was a new intermediary on on watch and that that intermediary was interested only in promoting clicks, not in promoting the truth. And I was at the American Academy of Pediatrics when that happened and followed that very closely with the, you know, I saw the Academy struggling to get information out about the safety and efficacy of vaccines and bat down, you know, rumors and and innuendo about thimerosal and all of these things. And they couldn't do it because Google was putting Jenny McCarthy and vaccine skepticism on their first page of results. And the Academy published you know, reams of, of evidence that vaccines were safe, and it couldn't make it on the on the um, onto the front page of, of Google's results. And things have only gotten worse since then. So now you have more and more uh, attention economy intermediaries like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and others that are filtering information. Uh, so that it's polarizing, so that it causes anxiety, so that it creates conflict, and so that it it creates confusion. And so I think that's one reason open access hasn't worked. I think the other is there have been numerous instances where it's become clear that articles that are paid uh, to be published generally are of lower quality. Uh, They generally are not as interesting. And they tend to be filler. And then you also have the extension of open access to include preprints, which are unreviewed. And so, you know, there's a very, um, uh, people have tried to, the other, yeah, one last thing, and then I'll I'll let you get back to it. You got me going. <laughs> one thing that that I think has also made it difficult for open access to work is that it can't even define what it is. So it keeps wandering around trying to say this isn't open, that's not open, but it doesn't, its goals aren't clear. You know, is it to make it so that higher quality information is free? Is it to make information better? Is it to make information for the public more accessible, for professionals more accessible? Um, If what does accessibility mean? Because you have all sorts of other barriers to understanding comprehension and utility that occur around information. So it's a very confused uh, uh,
2: situation. If I could just jump in for one second, Ken. So, I mean, and first of all, thank you very much for that. You know, like, you know, history of where things have gone because I think it gives it a great platform for us to talk a little bit about, in your opinion, how things got so out of control so quickly, I guess you know, the premise of open access, if you talk to most, you know, academics and you chat with them, they say, well, you know, I think it's a good thing in principle. To your point, I don't think there's an, everyone has a different definition of what they believe that is. But to use a, maybe not a good analogy, but let's say the Jurassic Park analogy, when did the velociraptor get out of the cage? When did the, when did this predatory journal really find its home um, for the wrong reasons? And then how do you get, control of this? Like what is the future? And maybe I've asked many questions, but I think you get the gist of what I'm getting at.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mo. So I think one of the, so first of all, I want to applaud the orthopedics community for putting up barriers around open access and especially preprints. Um, I think that that's important. It's as a business model, you brought up an important element, which is the predatory journal. So one of the things about the open access model is that it doesn't have to demonstrate value to make money. It's cash on the barrelhead publishing. So you get paid as soon as you get a paper in and you agree to publish it, then you can send an invoice. And that has resulted in a number of what are called predatory publishers, uh, some of which have become so large that the Federal Trade Commission fined one $50 million and did not put them out of business because they moved to predatory conferences and similar thing there are a few issues with that particular model one the saddest one to me is the fact that there are very really, very good academics and researchers who get sucked into that and their papers get put in those journals and then they're lost because no one's going to believe them or trust them it may be very good science but that they've they've been tricked they've been duped and so their papers are not ever going to find the audience and they can't publish them again so That's one problem. I think, you know, the reason it has gone on so long and and gotten so big and so bad. I personally believe is a lack of clarity among editors and publishers about what our role is, and and a lack of backbone to defend that role and to justify that role and to say that that role is important. And that has surprised me. The 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 uh, lack of uh, clarity, the lack of commitment, and the lack of articulation about the role that publishers and editors possess in an information economy. To me, journals very simply are third-party, as objective as possible, evaluators of how good claims are, and they—that's their role. How good is it? So the funder makes a bet, the researcher makes a bet, they do a trial. They say, here are the results, and the journals go send it to expert intermediaries. They have their own experts on staff. They take it through a a process that is rigorous, that's careful, that's fair, and they evaluate how good is it. And they help, typically help authors and everyone associated with them make their works better, clearer, um, more compelling, and the answers um, more adherent to the underlying facts and data. Um, And I think that, you know, that to me, people, and then also translating that to the public, one of the things that has happened with preprints, especially, is that they have stolen media coverage from journals, they've taken the uh, Inglefinger rule, and thrown that overboard, so that now journalists are trolling preprint servers and becoming the intermediaries to the public instead of editors experts and expert publishers professional publishers being the interme- intermediaries to the public so uh, you know can we put it back you know a lot of people just throw up their hands and say well the horse is out of the barn the cat's out of the bag and i always remind remind them well the horse was in the barn the cat was in the bag we do know how to wrangle cats we do know how to lasso horses and i think editors and publishers have very Obvious levers they can pull to put things back in proper working order. One of them is simply we won't accept papers that have been preprinted. Um, you know, the, you can't go out and make claims without peer review. You have to have diligent expert peer review evaluate your work. Doing that simply, that one thing it would change everything. You know, so I think that that policy, I think the other policy would be to get the the media back in, um, in under control with embargo policies.
2: And okay, while we're waiting, what's the Engelfinger rule? You mentioned it, Ben.
1: So the Engelfinger rule was uh, so back in the late 1960s, there was a journalist. I'd have to look up his name. I met him once, but he was at The New York Times. And his assertion to the editors of the New England Journal of Medicine at the time was that it was inappropriate for the editors of the New England Journal of Medicine to withhold news, uh, scientific news, until they had uh, processed it, that journalists were just as capable. And so the editors said, "Uh, no, (laughs) we're not going to do that. So Franz Engelfinger, who was the editor in chief of the journal at the time and quite a character and also who had did not suffer fools gladly created a rule that said you cannot we won't publish any papers that have been previously published or that have gained media attention beyond before we've seen them. And that created a lot of order in the system and created the whole media embargo. And my experience with the media embargo has been that it's generally was a very positive thing. First report science reporters and medical reporters are generally excellent. Or at least they were uh, up until, you know recently, but I still think there are some excellent ones there. If being a, their assignments are getting mixed up, but the ones who are good are very, very good. And what it would do is create this collaboration between the experts at the journal, the authors, their institution, and the journalists, and the journalists would be able to tell a full story to the public that was clear based on evidence, based on peer reviewed, uh, the peer reviewed literature. So the Englefinger Rule created a lot of, of sensible information flows for the public. It took you know research, it put it on, you know, into an expert review flow, prevented it from going uh, viral and feral uh, before it was ready, allowed the journals to collaborate with professional journalists to get the public the best and clearest story based on the best evidence, And the public had a very coherent set of facts that they could follow. And you fast forward to now with preprints, especially during COVID, and you had reporters coming in, finding the most inflammatory and upsetting things they possibly could on preprint servers, amplifying those without the expertise. They didn't have editors to turn to for context. They didn't, things weren't peer reviewed, so they didn't have the best information information. 30 to 55% of preprints are never peer reviewed, published in the peer reviewed publications. And a lot of those were the ones that they would go after because they were the most outrageous. And so you ended up with a confused public. You ended up with journals that were sidelined and journal editors that were sidelined because the journalists had gotten what they wanted. And that was the main problem with the assertion of the journalist back in the 1960s with the editor of the of NEJM, which is that journalists have completely different incentives. Than journal editors and journal publishers and scientific societies and other truth-seeking organizations, especially now with an, att- an attention economy driving everything, they are looking for quick hits. They're looking for uh, traffic. They're looking for clicks. They're looking for today's hot story in a way that they weren't before. Um, and you know, preprints have fed that. Social media feeds that, and all those other things. So I think it's it's a it's a it's a troublesome information space and the abdication of journals, journal editors, journal publishers has allowed for for a lot of that to occur where they could insert themselves again and put in strong policies and stop it, in my opinion.
0: Right, I'll just, I'll just remind the listening audience that uh, the major orthopedic journals got together four years ago, and we published our, our our policy as a collective orthopedic family that anything that's been cited uh, in a preprint uh, will, uh, in your manuscript, we will not accept it for publication, we screen for that. And the biggest, the biggest reason, and for that decision is that you have two versions then the, the peer review version and then the preprint version, and they can state very different things and can mm-hmm. result in actually harming humans when it comes to healthcare. But, yeah. um, and, uh, I, I, am very, very proud of that very wise, wise decision. Um, uh, Kent uh, that that was very, very helpful. What, what are your thoughts about, uh, ways that the social media, um, magnates uh, can be reined in uh, to move back towards a standard of truth rather than this business model they have of, of clicks being dollars. Uh, what kind of regulation uh, could be effective in this regard? And are, are you, do you have an element of hope that it could come, come into being?
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at the amount of change that has occurred in the past few years, you see more moderation from the likes of Twitter, especially, has been very good. And you know. then you see Elon Musk coming in and trying to take that all apart. Um, he's probably going to fail. But you see more and more pressure on these groups. There's a big lawsuit going after Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg in particular. It has moved from California and now includes the attorney general for the uh, District of Columbia. They're naming him personally liable for uh, knowingly releasing data to Cambridge Analytica. Uh, against policies and against the law. And so I think there's, there as as somebody once said, there probably will be at some point, a perp walk of a CEO of a company like Facebook or Twitter or another that will lead to major changes. But if they were proactive, the thing that puzzles me, Roger McNamee, who is um, a Silicon Valley guru, and, you know, one of the initial investors and a mentor for Mark Zuckerberg, um, he's become disenchanted with Zuckerberg and, and wrote a book called Zucked. Um, and, you know, I've, I've known him for a long time and I interviewed him for the, the Geyser. And uh, he, he makes the, ad, the argument that if Facebook had a subscription model, it would be a completely different uh, platform because then it would have to serve the user. And the user would have control uh, that if they were displeased, they could abandon uh, in droves. And you know, Facebook's stock is down fifty percent uh, this year, but they're still going to make a lot of money. Um, but if that were subscription based, they would be changing their behavior uh, in a much more attenuated and consistent manner because they would see subscriptions start to fade away, they would recover. Uh, they would, you know, uh, respond to that, and I would give customers a tool to say this is too much. And so I think one thing would be simply to shift the business model. Twitter is actually considering that shift, and I think it it's long overdue. I years and years ago, I just couldn't figure out why they wouldn't do what I call a lease and subscribe model, where for somebody like Beyonce or Stephen Colbert, they would say, you know, it's going to charge. We're going to charge you. Fifty thousand dollars a year for your your to promote yourself on our site um, with your you know because you're a superstar and we'll charge users you know a dollar a month uh, to have these certain features access to those premium accounts and some of those other things and you would have a much different platform that way um, one that's not driven by uh, you know outrageous information so what they call I think what social media has become is an attention casino. So every time you go and, and look at a news feed uh, you're basically pulling the arm on a, on a attention slot machine and that is', is what you know, there's a great article in The Atlantic last month about how the like button on Facebook was the basically the start of the undoing of, of Facebook the change of it from a, a trusted, Uh, source to one that was driven by, um, you know, driven by polarization, uh, by extreme information, and by, you know, confounding the users. And the other thing that has happened is that foreign adversaries have learned that social media is a great propaganda tool. Um, They are, you know, during various elections, here and abroad, uh, there have been, you know, Facebook and others have been associated with genocide. They have been used to start uh, protests in American cities that were fake uh, because they basically appealed to both sides of an issue and said there's going to be a protest at this park. And so the protesters and the counter protesters both showed up. It was completely invented, uh, completely fake. You have a lot of people who are believing things that are, you know, pro-Russia, pro pro to authoritarianism and you know authoritarians love social media because of that it is a great propaganda tool the best one ever invented and so the rise of authoritarianism with social media's ascendancy is is congruent it's not coincidental it's congruent uh the two are two are interlinked and you know i think that the again we get back to the techno utopians and their vulnerability to these things plus you also have like you called the magnets magnates they're pretty authoritarian people in and of themselves. A lot of them have never, you know, really experienced hardship. And a lot of them have not experienced a diverse lifestyle, um, and a lot of them are very have very big egos and are you know kind of not the kind of people you would want to watch your dogs.
0: Yeah, uh, Kent. i I've just got. I know your time is uh, limited, but I, I've got a, a question. I think I, I. know actually, Mo and I are both interested in, as uh, uh, people who have are kind of paying attention to the role of uh, data sets in, in scholarly advancing mm. scholarly mission. What is your uh, notion of the future of the individual manuscript, the, the individual scientific article that's highly peer reviewed? Is it going to be forever or will it morph into somehow data elements that are uh, authenticated?
1: Uh, Yes, to -hmm. both. Um, So, you know, in my lifetime, uh, articles have evolved. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they they used to be, you know, there used to be unstructured abstracts and there were structured abstracts. There used to be, you know, simple black and white uh, figures. Now, then there were color figures. Now there are animations associated with them. Um, I think that the, a lot of those animations are interpreted, highly vetted and interpreted data sets in, in a way. Um, so I think that that kind of processed information is going to become more common. I think media choices, you know, the use of video, um, I was involved in, in getting the first um, peer reviewed video articles um, accepted into PubMed via NEJM. And you know, that was highly processed visual information. Um, So I think, you know, data sets that can, that can definitely happen with, but I think how they're drawn, how they're animated, uh, the story that comes out of them is what is going to, uh, you know, draw readers, make points, help people understand the world. I think, you know, then you can make the data set available for other machine readable uses, but I think first you have to get it right. One of the data scientists I used to work with said the best way to make data clean is to prepare it for publication. because then you go through all of those really hard steps of wait, does this actually make sense? Can I actually draw a table that makes sense? How would I actually present this? How would this what is the story in the data? And you know, ultimately, I think that's the direction we're headed in is once a publisher, an editor, an editorial team, A group of info uh, graphics people, information specialists, machine learning specialists have grappled with a data set enough to be able to say, "Okay, we now know what the story in this data set is. We've vetted it. It's clean. It's good. We can draw things out of it. We can animate it. We can show it to people we know and understand it. Now we can make it available and other people can use it. Um, I think one of the mistakes that we've made is not taking that level of care with the data. Before issuing it to through a public interface and that's another minor source of confusion because a lot of people can't actually wrestle with data themselves
2: and it would seem it would seem uh kent that you know your argument that you know using highly structured organized groups publisher groups that you know can vet data make the job of ai and machine learning that much easier because the biggest challenge at least in my experience in talking to these experts has been People keep saying that, you know, we should, you know, it's easy to take all these different data sets and use them. The problem is they're not good quality structured data that is useful, um, you know, for the purposes of actually realizing the full potential of AI and machine learning. Everyone talks about the term, like, you know, everyone says we're doing it, but they're not doing it well. Right. And I guess it just comes back to your argument today, which is we've got to find a way to get signal out of this noise. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. And and then you can
1: just say everything's blockchain and you're good. I mean the, right. the, the number of the number of techno technology scams has been also amazing to watch them all kind of break down recently but I totally agree I think that you know you need good teaching sets for any machine learning or AI uh, to work and if you aren't taking the time to create those
2: and promulgate those you're you're going to be taking a step back. It certainly seems like the lowest hanging fruit. And I'm, I'll stop, Mark. I know you're dying to uh, jump in. Sorry, but I'll, I could talk to Ken for hours. As I know you can, but we only have a few minutes here. But, uh, Ken, it would seem to me then, from your point, at least one of the potentials is the lowest hanging fruit we have is high quality peer reviewed literature for sources of data. I think that's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, I'd agree with that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's OE's model, right, Mo? No, yeah.
2: I just think it's a, it's a very yeah. rational one. and It's great to hear that there's support for that.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's lo- highly logical, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Kent, uh, thanks so much for spending the time. And, uh, I just want to point out to the audience that you, uh, you put your, uh, your, uh, actions where your mouth is, uh, because you changed platforms recently for your own blog, because the vendor had drifted away from a truth standard. If I understand what happened.
2: Yeah. Yep.
0: Um, and, uh, uh, so, and that's not easy to do uh, when you have as many followers as you do, but uh, for, for those of you listening that would like to sign on to the geyser, I highly recommend it. Kent, how, how do they find it? How do they get onto your blog?
1: So they can go to v dash geyser.com G E Y S E R pronounced in the UK as geyser. I've learned, <laughs> which is the subject of many jokes since my beard has turned gray, um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, sign up. You can there's plenty. There's plenty of free content. There's some uh, for paid subscribers only. I did change platforms, and uh, it was because the other one started to support fraudsters yeah. under the guise of free speech, which is another techno utopian move. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I highly recommend it uh, for those of you in the audience interested in this this whole line of of uh thinking and uh uh, work to really uh go back to the truth standards not only in scholarly publication but in our everyday lives Uh, and kent uh thank you so much uh and uh do you have a do you have a gig coming up for your band that we do boston area might want to attend but yeah
1: so we'll be at hollis hills farm this saturday uh we're playing 19 shows in 14 weeks in the Boston area and Connecticut and Maine. So we're up in Arundel, Maine for the 4th of July. We're down in Madison beach and mystic Connecticut, um, either side of that. So yeah, just look up. Our band is called petty larceny. So you can, we're Tom Petty tribute band. So you can look up, it's a crime to miss this band. So you can look it up. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, if you're in the Boston area, come see us. I think you'll enjoy it. We have an awesome lead singer, great musicians, and we know how to have a good time. So.
2: And and Kent, can I just make a guess that you are a
1: bassist? You are incorrect, Mo. Oh, okay. (laughs) You you just have a vibe of a bassist. Well, I I appreciate that. That's a compliment. (laughs) No, I'm the keyboard player.
2: So, Okay. Very cool. Yeah.
0: That's great. Well, thanks, Kent. Uh, Really appreciate your time. And look for this fantastic Ortho Joe travel mug coming your way in the mail.
1: Absolutely. More than than enough. Thank you, guys. It's great (laughs) to see you again. Appreciate the time.
0: Yep. Bye-bye. Take care.